you've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and supporting the Black Man with the Gun Show. This week, I have a conversation with the author of Safety On, a new children's book by Yehuda Rima. Michael J. Woodland shares what he learned from his last competition. And he's talking about sights, too. And I read the latest post from Black Man with a Gun called March Madness by David Cole. In our history segment, we remember a black man with a gun that traveled with Lewis and Clark. Mm-hmm. His name is York. This show is sponsored by Crossbreed Holsters, U.S. Concealed Carry, and you. This is episode number 512. This is the Conscientious Weekly Podcast that talks about firearms and things of interest to the gun community. Don't let the name scare you. This is the pro-fun, pro-gun show with history, commentary, news, interviews from all over America. Hi, my name is Ken Blanchard and I've been a gun rights activist since 1991. And you just discovered the show with over 1.7 million downloads with celebrity guests, new products, and good people making a difference. After John Wayne leads us in the Pledge of Allegiance, let's get this party started. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, we're about uh, the first week of March already at the time of this recording. Can you believe how fast the year is moving? I just got back from PodFest U.S., a uh, podcasters conference down in Orlando, Florida, had a ball, learned a lot of stuff, got a chance to uh, network and talk to some professional podcasters and some new ones to get a whole new slice of life, uh, opinions, and just uh, see what the other folks are doing. And uh, I got a chance to be the closing speaker or part of it at the last day, and it was kind of nice. I actually got inspired by a guy who is running a network of podcasts and doing quite well with it. So I'm going to take his lead and uh, actually his tutelage and learn from the brother and do the same thing for the gun podcasters. So now I'm going to be looking for some pro folks that uh, can grow with me because we're going to do something special. I know the network thing is it's not new. We've tried it before, but we kind of went awry with it. I got a plan. And I, I'm, I've been doing this thing for a minute. So I'm trying everything that works in the positive. I'm hustling, man. I'm trying to make this my full-time gig. Now, I know some of you guys are saying, man, you're always trying something new. Why don't you just quit? Well, see, I believe that life is about taking chances, trying new things, having fun, making mistakes, and learning from it. I know 99 things that don't work. So I'm just a little bit closer than where I'm supposed to be got to move out of your comfort zone sometimes you only grow if you're willing to feel awkward and uncomfortable when you try something new that's how it works a person who never makes a mistake has never tried anything new einstein said that so i'm just letting you know that uh, i had the gun movement i had american gun owner i've had urban shooter i mean i could probably 
if you've been with me for a minute, you can probably tell me 10 things that have started and stopped. I got a podcast that just died yet, like this week. It was called the Upper Marlboro Podcast. I was going to be a local podcaster and just do some stuff, history, locally. I lost uh, that love and feeling, actually. I had about 30 downloads the month of February. Eh. I'm going through the fog, right? But this one, this is different. You'll hear about it more as I grow it, but I'm going to do it nice and slow and steady and work it. That's how I do. To me, all life is an experiment. And the more experiments you make, the better. Also, also the cool thing I learned about the uh, PodFest, there's another one coming up in Anaheim, California in August called Podcast Movement, which is huge. Should be like 2,000 people there. This one, PodFest in Orlando, will be next year too. And if you are into this social media podcasting, YouTube and thing, you might want to check it out. You can always learn something from somebody or get inspired to do something different. We're going to start off this episode with an interview I had with an author of children's book by the name of Safety On. His name is Yehuda Reamer, a really cool guy and a father of three. And he's up next. And this week, I have the pleasure of speaking to Yehuda Reamer, the author of a cool book called Safety On, an introduction to the world of firearms for children. Yehuda, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me. Tell me about this book, man. Uh, the book is, like you said, it's a book called Safety On. It's an introduction to the world of firearms for children. Uh, it has no political agenda whatsoever. It's solely a book on gun safety that is for ages 5 to 10 that parents can read to their child. And it basically opens the door that gives the parents opportunity that they can read and bring up gun safety in a very easy manner. That's cool, man. Why is this important to you? Uh, it's important to me. I have three kids of my own and learning about gun safety from an early age, not only makes me feel better about what happens if my kids ever encounter, but but to be honest, guns, second amendment, part of the fabric of our country. And if I can help begin the educational process of, I guess, educating future generations of gun owners through a responsible way, you know, it's a good day for me. That's cool, man. Where's your book? Where can we find it? Right now you can find it on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And if you want more information, you can also check out YehudaReamer.com. It has more information about the book, upcoming projects. My name is the Hebrew version of Judah. I'm a religious Jew. Ah. That's what my parents gave me. That's cool, though. But being Jewish and you're pro-gun, that's doesn't, that usually doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I've been asked about that a lot. Uh, usually, you always hear Jews looking at guns in a negative light, especially, right. when you have, especially when you have some of the biggest anti-gun grabbers in Congress and in the government being Jews like Dianne Feinstein, you have Richard Blumenthal, Michael Bloomberg. Rahm Emanuel, and we see how that's going in Chicago. Right, and, right. 
you know, I'm a religious Jew, and I decided that why give Jews such a negative light uh, when talking about guns? Well, you know, it's not. I have tons of friends who have guns, all religious Jews, and they they don't care about the liberal agenda. They to them, you know, never again only means something if you're willing to do something about it. I hear you, man. Good stuff. You're not by yourself, though. I'm, as being a person of color, I get the same crap. So I, I get it. <laughs> I can understand. That's all right. So this book is available at your website, and it's available at, where else did you say? Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Oh, that's right. Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It's kind of a, it's a pretty, who who um illustrated it for you? It's, it's a nice looking book. Yeah, uh, that's actually a crazy story. I was looking for illustrators for months and months, and nothing really caught my eye until a friend decided to introduce me to a website called Elance, mm, which is now which is now called Upwork. But it's basically a freelance website, and I posted this job saying looking for a children's illustrator, uh, you know, children's author, children's book illustrator, and. I had, I mean, I think I had between 90 and 100 applicants within two days. And I looked through everybody's portfolio. And although talented, just not what I was looking for until I found this one guy based out of Western Ukraine. And I saw a picture of of something he drew of a man in slacks, a button-down shirt, and he had a thigh holster. And I knew right then that this is the guy that's going to illustrate my book. And it's been an absolute amazing relationship. This guy is easy to work with, phenomenal, just no problems, no hassles. The entire illustration process was an absolute breeze. But from what I've been told, is actually a big blessing because a lot of times you just have the creative differences and fallouts. But this guy is truly just a gentleman and easy to work with and i do have a couple other books coming up so i'm definitely going to go back to this guy yeah it looks like a norman rockwell painting i mean each picture you could like stick somewhere i mean it's like postcard looking yeah i i I wanted the book to be a very visual book not just because a it looks good but when you're dealing with young kids Kids remember visuals more than they hear, more than they remember the audio. So I wanted a child, I wanted a parent to be able to read the book to a child, and the child really memorizes what each page is. That way they can internalize the proper protocol when dealing with guns and, you know, being safe. Oh, nice. Are you a concealed carry guy? Are you a hunter? Or are you a target shooter? Where you are in the scale of a com- in the gun community? So I am a concealed carry holder. Uh, I live in Texas. I also am a range shooter. Go to the range all the time. Hunting, unfortunately, I have not had the ability to go yet. I grew up in Los Angeles, where just thinking about guns would get you thrown in prison. I've never had the opportunity to go hunting yet. I, I'm looking forward to it. I have a few friends who invited me just with three kids. It's kind of hard to work around the schedule. But I, I do plan on going eventually. It's all right. So so the next books you're doing, are they um, 
going to be in the same genre? Are you going to do some fiction or nonfiction? What are you doing? I'm, I'm gonna right now. I'm, I'm happy with the kids genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're actually we're actually my publisher and I were in the middle of converting my book Safety On to a coloring book. Oh, okay. That way, that way, kids after they read the book, they can really immerse themselves into the story and create their own visualizations by coloring the book. Oh, that's good. And then I do have two more books that I'm working on after that. One of them is a gun-related book. The other one is not a gun-related book, but it definitely deals in the political world, which is going to be more of a gimmick book, a coffee table type book, something that you can, a good conversation starter. Oh, nice. Concealed carry, what's your carry gun? I carry the Glock 43. Oh, okay. A Glock guy. It's a single... Yeah, I'm a big Glock guy. I know some of your fans might not be happy with that. Shoot, I am. Each their own, but uh, I'm a big Glock guy. I carry the Glock 43. I'm a small guy. It's good in my hands. I can hit my targets. I carry a couple spare magazines on me because it is a low capacity, only has six rounds in it. But uh, yeah, I'm a big Glock guy. Okay, cool, man. Let's see. I've asked. Oh, family. You got three kids. What's the ages? I have a seven-year-old boy, a five-year-old girl, and then a ten-month-old boy. Wow. I remember those days. Oh, it's fun. Yeah, man. A, a good a good dad, too. Man, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show, and um, I'm going to have to get you back up here for some updates whenever you do a new project. Yeah, I would love to come back, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If there's anything... Um, I missed. Did you want to share with the audience? My folks are pretty cool, man. You got a nice family here. Um, anything you want to tell I, your brothers and sisters? No, you. No, you really. Uh, you really hit the nail on the head with this. You got covered most of it. And uh, like I said, if anyone's interested in any of my future projects, anything like that, the best place to reach me is yehudareemer dot com. That's y e h u d a r e m e r dot com, and you know I'm. I answer pretty quickly, so that it. Being an armed citizen means having a gun with you all the time. Carrying a firearm every day requires a holster that is both concealable and comfortable. Whether you choose our Super Tuck Deluxe or Mini Tuck, you'll have the confidence that comes from being discreetly and comfortably armed, prepared to face unforeseen dangers. Crossbreed holsters are handmade in the USA, come with a lifetime warranty and a two-week try-it-free guarantee. Order your holster today at crossbreedholsters.com. This is a blog post from my brother, Dave Cole. He calls it March Madness. He says, it's that time of year again, a time when the best in the game square off and test their skills. And if they aren't good enough, they get eliminated. There you have my thinly veiled metaphor comparing our annual college basketball tournament to gunfighting skill. But it's a valid one. Shooting a basketball and shooting a gun are both physical skills, and physical skills erode without regular practice. But it's not just about shooting, is it? After all, if all the basketball player did was stand and shoot set shots from the free throw line, what chance would you give him in the next big game? And what if he only shot those free throws a couple times a year? In actuality, even if someone were 100% from the free throw line, but that was all they were good at, you probably wouldn't even consider it with them to be a complete basketball player. 
In order to be considered a basketball player, they need to have some ball handling skills, right? They need to be able to dribble and move with the ball and do it without thinking about it. And you'd have to be able to shoot from different distances and angles than just from the free throw line, too. Layups, hook shots, and even some three-point shots all needed to be practiced. And with either hand, to be considered a complete player. And in addition to competence and the physical skills, you need to develop some sense of game strategy and tactics, where to move, when to move, and then when and where to take the shot you're capable of making. So it is with the defensive pistol. Standing in a lane at your local square range and shooting a paper target at seven yards is much like shooting free throws. It's an important skill to have. But if that's all you can do, you're probably not ready to play in a big game. And at the risk of sounding overly dramatic, our game is to the death. So what to do? My suggestion is to get your own March Madness on. In much of the country, this is the time of year when local gun clubs start spinning up their competitive schedule. And as you already know, I'm a big fan of competition for honing pistol skills. Don't be intimidated to try it. There are all sorts of pistol games out there for just about any skill level. Dave says one type of match he recommends is to get started in the competitive arena is a steel plate match. While some matches like official steel challenge matches may include drawing from the holster or a little bit of movement, much and most of them are simpler. At a typical club level steel match, you'll likely be allowed to shoot quote off the table, which is essentially from the low ready position. No holster required and spare magazine. Speed loaders or moon clips can simply be laid out on the table in front of you. And when the timer starts, you will shoot a certain sequence of steel targets for time. There may be a certain order in which you have to engage the targets and maybe a mandatory reload, but that's all there is to it. And although it is relatively simple, the practice you get from shooting a steel match is a lot better than going to a square range and shooting, quote, free throws. You'll fire multiple shots at multiple targets at different distances and maybe even do some speed reloads, even on just one course of fire. These matches don't require a lot of specialized equipment or a ton of ammo, and entry fees are usually a bargain. The next level would be one of action pistol sports like USPSA or IDPA. These types of matches do usually require some equipment, such as a proper holster and ammo pouches, but they don't have to be fancy. While you certainly can get into a lot of specialized equipment, it isn't necessary to get started. In these matches, shooters are moved through a variety of stages and courses of fire, which can be laid out in just about any way you can imagine. There will be multiple targets, sometimes moving targets, and some targets which may be partially, partially obscured. You'll shoot from all sorts of stationary positions and sometimes on the move, firing multiple shots and reloading as you go. This is great practice for a variety of skills, which can be critical in a defensive encounter where no free throws here. Dave says critics will often point out that these pistol games are just that, games, and that they don't teach proper tactics. He says that's fair, but I don't believe it's a problem as long as you understand what you're getting from the game and what you're not getting. While pistol competition may not be, quote, tactical, what it does give you is the opportunity to practice skills that you cannot usually practice at most public ranges. Skills like the draw stroke, multiple shots, multiple target transitions, reloads, moving safely with a gun in your hand, and even the occasional malfunction drill can all be worked in a pistol competition. And in his opinion, the most important thing that this sort of practice develops is that it makes the mechanical operation of the gun itself automatic. When you can manipulate the hardware without conscious thought, 
it frees up the mind to solve the problem at hand, whether it is how to negotiate a USPSA pistol stage or how to defend yourself. So, why not move past just shooting, quote, free throws and get into some March Madness this year? Your pistol skills will improve and you'll have fun in the process. Thank you, Dave. Good post, my brother. And Dave has included some video and pictures as well on BlackMountainTheGun.com. This portion of the show has been brought to you by the United States Concealed Carry Association. The USCCA has been providing education, training, and self-defense insurance to responsibly armed Americans since 2003. Join Tim Schmidt and myself here at usconcealedcarry.com. Next up is the recently civilianized Michael J. Woodland. Big Mike, you're up next, brother. Thank you, Ken, and welcome to another Tips and Review segment. I am Michael Woodland of m-wtactical.com, and today we're going to continue and discuss sights on your firearm. For the past couple of weeks, we have discussed sights on your firearm, and this week we will continue this conversation with me doing my first USPSA match after a year. Everything we spoke on in the past must be applied, and I can contest to this. If you've been listening for a while, you would have heard me discuss in the past about focusing on the front sight while applying the fundamentals when you are shooting. There are drills we have discussed to make this transition a little easier as well. Last week, when I was shooting in Charlotte, North Carolina, I did take notice that all the practicing over the past year kept me intact, but my timing and speed were down some. One thing I did notice from the rip was that I was going too fast and not working the gun, but playing the clock. After the first stage jitters were out the way, my decision was to slow down and focus on the front sight. After that, it was like I was back to my old self and doing some serious work. Then two days later, I did my first indoor match in USPSA. This was very different for me. This is something I will talk about next week. The lesson of the day will be focus on the front sight. Stay with the drills and do not get overwhelmed with excitement. The more you practice, the more it will become second nature. And when you do make a mishap, you will know where and when you need to slow down. Tune in next week as we tackle another area of marksmanship for another tips and review segment. Thank you for all those who follow and support the M-W Tactical Facebook page. If you haven't done so, look us up on Facebook and hit the like button and join in on the many discussions that are taking place. If you are more in the photos, follow me on Instagram at MJ Woodland where you can get an up-close and personal involvement of my daily life and involvement at a shooting range. If you would like to read more about us, do so by going to www.m-wtactical.com, where you can easily connect with us on any of the previously mentioned social platforms while looking at pictures, viewing future classes, emailing us, or even listening to the current week of the Black Man with the Gun podcast. For those who want a more direct approach, just call us at 803-250-1256 and let's discuss what is on your mind from shooting classes or just inviting us out to come to your upcoming event until next week keep shooting keep practicing and have fun back to you kid.
I was talking to this guy one time about all the things I've done first, you know, just being the first black guy this, the first black guy that, the first man to be here, the first blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you can still be first in a lot of things today. Back in the day, like way back in our history, being first made you a frontiersman, a mountain man. Nobody remembers those guys, as my friend was letting me know. Hardly anybody remembers that person who went out there by himself. You tend to remember the ones that you just saw recently, the new people, the new stars of YouTube, the new stars of, uh, of whatever. And just made me think. Don't know where I'm going with that, but just sharing at the moment. But it takes me back today to Mer- Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. At the request of President Thomas Jefferson, they led an expedition to survey the land west of the Mississippi, known as the Louisiana Territory. It had been purchased from France in 1803. Lewis and Clark and the rest of their expedition began their journey near St. Louis, Missouri in 1804. This group, often called a Corps of Discovery by historians, faced nearly every obstacle and hardship imaginable on their trip. They braved dangerous waters and harsh weather and endured hunger, illness, injury, and fatigue. During their first winter, they received help and guidance from Sagajawea, a Shoshone Indian. Meriwether Lewis was an American explorer who, with William Clark, led the Lewis and Clark expedition through the uncharted American interior to the Pacific Northwest in 1804 through 06. He later served as governor of Upper Louisiana Territory. The Lewis and Clark expedition spanned 8,000 miles and three years, taking that core of discovery, as the expedition party was known, down the Ohio River, up the Missouri River, and across the Continental Divide, and to the Pacific Ocean. Lewis served as the field scientist, chronicling botanical, zoological, meteorological, geographic, and ethnographic information. I'm just curious, when was the last time a conversation brought up Lewis and Clark? I know. Born 18th of August, 1774, in Albemarle County in Virginia, he worked for Jefferson as a member of the state militia. Lewis helped to quell the Whiskey Rebellion, a Pennsylvania uprising led by farmers against taxes in 1794. The next year, he served with William Clark, a man who would later help him in one of the greatest expeditions of all time. Lewis joined the regular army and achieved the rank of captain. In 1801, he was asked by President Thomas Jefferson to act as his private secretary. Did you know Congress allocated $2,500 for the Lewis and Clark expedition? Already eager to learn more about these lands, Jefferson's interest in the area increased with the purchase of the Louisiana Territory from France in 1803. Jefferson asked Lewis to gather information about the plants, the animal, and the peoples of the region. Lewis jumped at the chance and selected old friend William Clark to join him as the co-commander of this expedition. So you got two friends being asked by the president to check out some new property that the country just bought. Along the way, Lewis kept a detailed journal and collected samples of plants and animals he encountered. Lewis and his expedition received assistance in their mission from many of the native people they met on this journey. The Mandans provided them with supplies during their first winter. It was during this time the expedition picked up two new members, Sagajawea and Toussaint Charbonneau. 
The two acted as interpreters for the expedition, and Sacagawea, uh, Charbonneau's wife, and a Shoshone Indian, was able to help get horses for the group later in the journey. The Corps of Discovery reached the Pacific Ocean in November of 1805. They built Fort Clatsop, I think that's how you say it, and spent the winter in present-day Oregon. On the way back in 1806, Lewis and Clark split up to explore more territory and look for a faster route home. Lewis and his men faced great danger when a group of Blackfeet Indians sought to steal from the Corps in late July. Two Blackfeet were killed in the ensuing conflict. The next month, Lewis was shot in the thigh by one of his own men during a hunt. Lewis and Clark and their two groups joined up again at the Missouri River and made the rest of the trek to St. Louis together. In total, 8,000 miles by boat, foot, and horseback. Traveling to Washington, Lewis and the other members of the expedition received a warm welcome from nearly every place they went. Many towns held special events to herald the explorers' return as they passed through. Once reaching the nation's capital, Lewis received payment for his courageous efforts, along with his salary and 1,600 acres of land. He was named governor of the Louisiana Territory. According to history, Lewis also tried to publish the journals that he and Clark wrote during this great adventure. Always prone to dark moods, he began to have a drinking problem and neglected his duties as governor. Lewis died on October 12, 1809, at an inn near Nashville, Tennessee. He had been on his way to Washington, D.C. at the time. Most historians believe he committed suicide, while a few have contended that he was murdered. Despite his tragic end, Lewis helped change the face of the United States by exploring uncharted territory, that is, the American West. His work inspired many others to follow in his footsteps and created great interest in the region. Lewis also advanced scientific knowledge. Through his careful work, numerous discoveries of previously unknown plants and animals were made. And now something you probably have never heard of before. There was a black man that was with this group and was pretty famous for the time. His name was York. He was an African-American slave, best known for his participation in the Meriwether Lewis and William Clark expedition. York was born in Caroline County, Virginia in 1770. York, his father, mother, Rose, and younger sister and brother, Nancy and Juba, were all owned by the Clark family of Caroline County. York, at 14, became William Clark's slave, passed down by a will from Clark's father. When the Clark family moved to Kentucky in 1784, York was Clark's manservant, a position he held on to until adulthood. When Clark and Meriwether Lewis selected men to go on what would be known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition, commissioned by President Thomas Jefferson, shortly after Louisiana Purchase in 1803, Clark selected York to accompany him. York was mentioned in Clark's diary, which chronicled their travel from St. Louis up the Missouri River and down the Columbia River to the Pacific Coast. Clark noted that York, unlike many of the explorers with them, could swim. Because of that ability, York was often assigned to collect greens along the Missouri River to feed the expedition. York was also given the responsibility of caring for Sergeant Charles Floyd, the sole member of the expedition who died along the way. In the autumn of 1804, when the expedition reached what is now South Dakota and made contact with local Native American tribes, the Arakaris were astonished to see a black man. York, who was described as large and had curly hair, soon became the object of their attention. 
The Arikaras crowded around him, touching his skin and hair, and found it difficult to understand why his color did not come off. The Mondans, in what is now North Dakota, reached similarly, or reacted similarly to New York, and because of his dark skin, called him Great Medicine. In 1805, during the expedition's winter stay in North Dakota, Clark used York to entertain the Native people. York's entertainment value continued as the expedition headed west into present-day Montana and encountered the Shoshones, among other Indian peoples. His presence may have persuaded the Shoshone to trade badly needed horses to the expedition in exchange for manufactured goods. By the time the expedition reached the coastal Pacific Northwest, however, York's novelty as a black man ended among the local Indians who had been trading with the British and Americans for decades and had often encountered black crew members of the ship of both nations. York made some invaluable contributions to this expedition on many occasions, risking his life to save Clark in a flash flood on the Missouri River near Great Falls in present-day Montana, going out and hunting and bringing in the game putting up the captain's tent, managing the sails, plying his oar, doing all the things that everybody else did, he made his way. And he was part of the team. And there's a big emphasis on that. Because this guy was not free back in Virginia. In one of the journals, it's written this, I quote, One of the stories, obviously, comes from the journals that they took. Different tribes would take dirt. And I remember my father telling me about this story, taking dirt and trying to go up to him and rub that black off. And when they found out that they couldn't rub it off, that he was a man, of course, he was very, he was very muscular and he was a big man, apparently. And so they had a lot of respect for that. And he was. He was followed around all the time by the, by the children and by the women because he was powerful. You know, and people respect that. And he was different. He was different. The Indian way teaches us that just because you're different doesn't mean it's wrong. You could be you could be handicapped in some way, mentally or physically, or you could have a just like York came as as the first black man they'd ever seen, and that was different. So he was very worshipped. He wasn't ostracized by any means at all. In fact, he was just the opposite. And that's coming straight from some text that's from history books. Another interesting part about this story is that um he had his own rifle. He got to vote. He was a full member of the expedition. And, of course, the Indian women loved him, and he took full advantage of that. According to documents, on many occasions, he would be missing at night and would be in the lodge with one of the Indians. And sometimes the Indian husband was standing guard while their business was being completed. When the expedition returned in St. Louis, York was publicly admired and appreciated, but he received few rewards. Other expedition members received double the pay, and that was initially promised them and the land for their services. York asked for his freedom after the expedition ended in 1806, but Clark refused his request. Years afterward, York not only remained enslaved, he was no longer Clark's body servant and was instead hired out for odd jobs, often being taken to various work locations in Kentucky and Tennessee. York married a slave woman after the expedition returned, but lost contact with her in 1811, when she was taken to Mississippi by her new owner, effectively ending the marriage. Accounts of York's death are unclear, but the strongest explanation is that he died from cholera in Tennessee sometime in 1832. 
Now some really strange history. In 2001, President Bill Clinton posthumously granted York the rank of honorary sergeant in the U.S. Army. Kentucky poet Frank X. Walker has written two books about of um, York called Buffalo Dance, The Journey of York, and Winter, When Winter Come, The Ascension of York in 2008. Both books were published by the University of Kentucky Press, and in this novel, Little Big Man, Thomas Berger mentions York as being probably the father of some very dark-skinned Indians. Now, what really messed me up during this whole thing was this whole Sergeant York thing is not to be confused with the York who was drafted during World War I, Alvin C. York. Yeah, it's a whole different dude, even though it is from Tennessee. I know this is a strange story, but it's just a part of history. If you stop learning, you stop creating history and you become history. This was the fantastic story of a man named York, a frontiersman, a slave, an American, an African, a black man with a gun. All right, I was researching all this stuff and it would been better if I put it all in chronological order. So I'm skipping around just a bit about this guy. But um, one of the, the documents I have here says years after York not only remained enslaved, he was no longer Clark's body servant and was instead hired out for odd jobs, often being taken to various work locations in Kentucky and Tennessee. York married a slave woman after the expedition returned, but lost contact with her in 1811 when she was taken to Mississippi by her new owner, effectively ending the marriage. So there was a York in Tennessee. That's strange, huh? And accounts of York's death are unclear, but the strongest explanation is that he died from cholera in Tennessee sometime in 1832. York. No last name. American slave. Best known for his participation with Lewis and Clark Expedition. Born in Caroline County in 1770. A black man with a gun. I want to share with you, in case you didn't know, that I revised a book that I wrote in 1999 and had this one published by White Feather Press called Black Man with a Gun Reloaded. It's a behind-the-scenes perspective of my life as a gun rights activist since 1991. It's a personal, candid, and honest about how I got here story how I've been influenced by and some of the characters in this community. It also concludes with a glossary of terms and things every gun person should know, and it'll help new people in our community. Go to Amazon.com today and order a copy for yourself. I'm trying to break even with this thing and need to sell about 100 more copies. If you don't have one or could afford a new one, go to book.blackmanwithagun.com and the link will take you right there. Hey, if you just the first time you're listening and I met you at PodFest, how cool is that? One universe, nine planets, 204 countries, 809 islands, seven seas, and I had the privilege of meeting you. Thank you for being a part of my life. And if you've been around a while and you know who you are, because of you, I laugh a little harder, cry a little less, and smile a lot more. I want to thank you for joining me. And if you liked what you heard, please tell somebody. Until next week, just in case nobody has told you this today. I love you. 
and there's not a darn thing you can do about it. Shalom, baby.